Hello, this is Christopher from Defeat Modernism, and welcome to my latest video, Ecumenism, the original sin of the new mass. In this video, I will be presenting a talk that was given by the late Mr. John Venari in 2014 on this subject. He's going to go over many of the quotes of the modernists themselves, uh, many of which were clergy that still hold the reins of power to this day. As you can see in the video I opened up with and what's streaming on the screen right now, this is from the 2008 World Youth Day in Sydney, Australia. And I wanted to show this because so many people are deceived by Benedict XVI, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who was one of the key modernists, one of the key enemies of the Mass and of the Church during the Second Vatican Council, and has remained as such to this very day. And this is just showing that the intention of the Second Vatican Council, the correct interpretation of it and of the New Mass, was not a Catholic or traditional interpretation, but that of modernism, which was already condemned by Pope St. Pius X. And some of you may have noticed in the beginning of that video, uh, and I didn't realize this until I was actually putting these clips together, that actually you can see Mr. Jorge Bergoglio in it uh, with a very happy grin on his face as this is taking place. So he was a student of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. So, of course, students are molded after their masters. And that is why Francis is, in fact, no different than Benedict XVI. Benedict XVI isn't a conservative. He is a radical liberal. Uh, he is a, quote-unquote, progressivist. He is a modernist. He is an enemy of the faith. And his so-called liberation of the, of the traditional right was nothing more than putting the true mass uh, below the level of the new mass, which is sacrilegious and blasphemous in and of itself. Uh, before we get to Mr. Vernari, though, I want to just give you some quotes from popes of the past, from dogmatic councils of the past, which condemns all of what you're seeing on the screen that Benedict XVI has been a promoter of and is taking part in uh, in this particular um, video that you're seeing. So let's um, let's cut from this and let's go to to this first quote. This is from the Council of Trent, 
Session 22. And the council states, quote, They shall also banish from churches all those kinds of music, in which, whether by the organ or in the singing, there is mixed up anything lascivious or impure, as also all secular actions, vain and therefore profane conversations, all walking about, noise and clamor, that so the house of God may be seen to be and may be called truly a house of prayer. So this statement on its own condemns the World Youth Day that you saw videos of, condemns the so-called Catholic charismatic music, um, Catholic charismatic movement and the music, uh, condemns all these profanities that take place in the new Mass, condemns the University of Steubenville Youth Conferences and all that charismatic nonsense, which is alien to the true Catholic faith, which is, is foreign, which is Protestant, which is heretical, and which does not lift the soul up to heaven, but leaves it here on earth and into the perversion of the flesh, of the lustful spirit. Now, continuing on, it's important to point out that the Roman pontiffs are bound to the received and approved rites of the sacraments. They can't create new rites on their own. They're bound to tradition because the Pope is the vicar of Christ. He is not Christ himself. He is Christ's vicar. And the Council of Constance declared that the Roman pontiff is bound to the received and approved rites of the sacraments. And it says, quote, Since the Roman pontiff exercises such great power among mortals, it is right that he be bound all the more by the incontrovertible bonds of the faith and by the rites that are to be observed regarding the church's sacraments, end quote. And then also the same council declared that the oath of the Roman pontiff include the following, quote, And I will preserve this faith unchanged to the last dot and will confirm defend and preach it to the point of death and the shedding of my blood. And likewise, I will follow and observe in every way the right handed down of the ecclesiastical sacraments of the Catholic Church. End quote. This oath had been taken by the popes since at least the year 681. That's nearly 1300 years. Paul VI was the last one to take this oath. And obviously, he perjured himself from it. That and also the oath against modernism that he took uh, prior to being ordained a priest, uh, as did all the Novus Ordo quote unquote pontiffs, uh, with the exception of Francis Bergoglio, who never took the oath against modernism prior to ordination because he was ordained in the new rite, which in and of itself is doubtful, which makes him both a doubtful priest and a doubtful bishop, and therefore at best, a doubtful, quote-unquote, pope. But that's a, a whole other story for another time. Um, this particular oath was removed by Paul VI. So now the Novus Ordo, quote-unquote, pontiffs don't take a papal oath. You have to ask yourself, why would they not want to take an oath to defend the church? Well, I'll let, that, I'll let you answer that for yourself. I think it's pretty clear. Now, uh, continuing on, the Mass being said in the vernacular language or the local tongue or the ver vulgar tongue has already been condemned. It was condemned in Session 22, Canon 9 of the Council of Trent, where 
as part of this canon, there's much more to it, but I wanted to just specify this one particular section. The canon says, If anyone saith that the Mass ought to be celebrated in the vulgar tongue only, let him be anathema. And then Pope St. Pius X again reconfirms this doctrine, this teaching, when he condemns the vernacular in his motu proprio, uh, trale selectudini. Uh, so this is from paragraph or section seven. He says, quote, the language proper to the Roman church is Latin. Hence, it is forbidden to sing anything whatever in the vernacular in the solemn liturgical functions, much more to sing in the vernacular the variable or common parts of the mass and office, end quote. The Council of Trent, again, this is session seven, canon 13, condemned dogmatically anyone, including the Pope, who would change the received and approved rites of the sacraments into new ones. And this carries on to the, the quote we read earlier about the Pope being bound to the received and approved rites of the Church. That was from the Council of uh, Constance. But here the Council of Trent says, quote, If anyone saith that the received and approved rites of the Catholic Church want to be used in the solemn administration of the sacraments, may be contempt or without sin be omitted at pleasure by the ministers or be changed by every pastor of the churches into other new ones, let him be anathema. In following the those canons that we read from the dogmatic Council of Trent, right? so that's infallible, these, these canons, these these condemnations are infallible. Pope St. Pius V, then in his document, Quo Primum, clearly stated that the traditional Latin Mass that he was now promulgating and codifying dates back to the original form and rite of the early church fathers. So this is to uh, put, put straight those who say that the new Mass somehow goes back to the original. It, it doesn't. It, the new Mass was created with the help of six Protestant ministers. That's on record. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, Mr. Venery covers that in this particular talk. Um, but here, Pope St. Pius V, and you, everyone should read his document, Quo Primum, it basically states that no one can prevent priests or bishops or laity from uh, attending, or in the, in the instance of the clergy, um, saying or offering the traditional Latin Mass. No one has that power. Not, not even the Pope can, can force us to take part in a liturgy that is contrary to Catholic doctrine. Uh, that the Pope would put himself outside the Church. He would be in schism uh, with the Church. But Saint, Pope St. Saint Pius V says here, and this is just one small section of that document, he says, quote, Hence, we decided to entrust this work to learned men of our selection. They very carefully collated all their work with the ancient codices in our Vatican Library and with reliable, preserved, or amended codices from elsewhere. Besides this, these men consulted the works of ancient and approved authors concerning the same sacred rites, and thus they have restored the Missal itself to the original form and rite of the Holy Fathers. End quote. This next quote comes from Pope Benedict XIV in his letter Alate Sunt, which was dated July 26, 1755. And he says, quote, Pope Galatius, in his ninth letter, 
chapter 26, to the bishops of Lucania, condemned the evil practice which had been introduced of women serving the priest at the celebration of Mass. Since this abuse has spread to the Greeks, Innocent IV strictly forbade it in his letter to the bishops of Talsculum. Quote, Women should not dare to serve at the altar. They should be altogether refused this ministry. End quote. We too have forbidden this practice in the same words in our oft-repeated constitution, Esti Pastoralis, section 6, number 21. End quote. So there again, you have the practice that is very common in the new mass of girls serving at the altar or women serving at the altar. This has already been condemned by at least two popes. And again, I mean, this is the, the Novus Ordo, the new mass is condemned by 2000 years of tradition, by dogmatic councils, by innumerable popes. Um, it is a false, ecumenical, sacrilegious, evil rite that no one who wants to save their soul should take part in. And Mr. Veneri is going to explain that in more detail. And then this will be the last quote. This is a prophecy from St. Bridget of Sweden from the 14th century. She says, quote, In the year 1980, the wicked will prevail. They will sacrilegiously profane and defile the churches by erecting in them altars to idols and to Antichrist, whom they will worship, and attempt to force others to do the same, end quote. And you can see that little um, uh, note there in the center of the, of the photo. Uh, it says, Paul VI would make the illicit new mass, quote-unquote, mandatory in 1974, which if we take into account Christ being born in 6 BC, which makes it the year 1980. So I thought that would be interesting. Um, many of you may not be aware of that particular prophecy. And there's, there's other prophecies uh, and Catherine Emmerich and, and, and others. Um, but not to make this any more lengthy, let's go to Mr. Venari. Uh, please remember to hit the like and subscribe button. And please remember to pass this on and to keep in your prayers. Our first speaker of the day is Mr. John Venari the editor of Catholic Family News, a monthly newspaper dedicated to the defense of the traditional Catholic faith. He regularly writes and lectures on the crisis in the church. He is the author of, among other things, close-ups of the charismatic movement and the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita. It is my honor to introduce to you Mr. Veneri. Your Excellency, Reverend Fathers, Holy Religious, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank Mr. Vogel for the introduction and the Angelus Press for the invitation. My topic is Ecumenism, the Original Sin of the New Mass. And I'm going to open with five quotations. First, Father Gregory Baum, liberal theologian, writing in Common Wheel Magazine, January 18, 1963, and he's writing just after the close of Vatican II's first session. He says, quote, The results of the voting during the last days was amazing and almost incomprehensible. Despite the considerable opposition at the beginning, all but 14 fathers voted in favor of a document on the liturgy, which, while guarding the unity, will once and for all destroy the uniformity of the Roman rite. And he's happy about it. Second quote. John Mormon, so-called bishop, Anglican bishop from Yorkshire, England, Protestant observer at Vatican II. 
In volume 27, issue of the Thomist, 1963, we read him saying, quote, When I read Vatican II's schema on the liturgy, I realized that many of the proposals which were put forth before the Council were in fact points which we Anglicans accepted 400 years ago. In reading the schema on the liturgy, I could not help but thinking but if the ch that if the Church of Rome were to carry out all the reforms proposed, they would one day find they had triumphantly invented the Book of Common Prayer. Quote number three, Archbishop Carl Wojtyla, December 8, 1965, a few hours after the close of Vatican II. He says, quote, it's not only the words that are significant, but likewise the behavior, the movements, the gestures, the open arms, the hands joined, the kiss of peace, all of these are Roman gestures. If blacks or Japanese wish to translate these gestures into their traditional mode of behavior, for that is necessary, one must translate them. Where will it end? In comparing an African mass to a European mass in 50 years' time, will we observe anything in common? Certainly we preserve the basic elements, the bread, the wine, but all else will be changed according to local traditions, the words, the gestures, colors, vestments, chants, architecture, decor. The problem of liturgical reform is enormous, and it's difficult to imagine where it will end. Quote number four, Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton, magnificent and eminent Thomistic theologian of the United States. He, he wrote the following in his personal diary on October 19, 1962. He says, I started to read the Council's material on the liturgy, and I was shocked at the bad theology. They are actually stupid enough to speak of the church working until there be one fold and one shepherd, as if that condition was not already achieved. And finally, the final quote, Archbishop Anibal Bonini said in a book published in 1966 that the purpose of Vatican II's constitution and the liturgy was to usher in, this is his words, the boldest and most fundamental liturgical reform of all time. Close quote. Now, what do you notice about all five of these quotes? First of all, they were all stated at the time of the council from 1962 to 1965-66. And second, none of these men, Baum, Mormon, Wotila, Fenton, or Bonini, had to wait until 1969 and the advent of the new mass to learn that Vatican II's reform would launch an upheaval, a liturgical revolution, and they recognized this revolution as contained within the council document itself. See, the new Mass was never intended to be a true representation of the Catholic theology of the Mass as codified by the, 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 the Council of Trent. And I would argue the Vatican II's constitution on the sacred liturgy itself was never intended by its true architects to be a presentation of the Catholic theology of the Mass as codified by the Council of Trent. It was designed as a revolution, and that revolution was visible from the beginning for those who had eyes to see. Now, we could talk about the new Mass from various aspects. We could talk about enculturation in the liturgy. As I said, Archbishop Wojtyla, 65, he saw it from the beginning. They're in, it's in the council document uh, on the liturgy, numbers 37, 38, and 40, if you want to look it up. It's all there. We could talk about the increase, the call for the increase of lay involvement. But what I want to talk about is the ecumenical aspect 
of all this, which the ecumenism being the fundamental principle of the new mass. In fact, in this presentation, I'll actually talk, be talking more about ecumenism and especially the tactics of ecumenists. I'll be talking about that more than the new mass, but we will wrap up uh, with the new mass at the end. Now, I want to point out, first of all, that the ecumenical spirit, the ecumenical approach, was a constitutive element of the Vatican II documents. The new ecumenical orientations permeated the documents, and this was done by design. And to demonstrate this, I want to quote a young progressivist theologian writing at the time of Vatican II. Now, we know, of course, that the original documents of Vatican II that were prepared by Cardinal Ottaviani and the Theological Commission two years prior to the Council, the Archbishop was involved with this, they were rejected during the first session of the Council, and new documents would be drawn up by the progressive theologians who were invited to the Council by John XXIII. And here we have a young progressive theologian rejoicing that the original schema on divine revelation was voted out. Listen to what he says. Quote, the text, the original text, the text, the text was, if we may use the term, utterly the product of the anti-modernist mentality that had taken shape about the turn of the century. The text was written in a spirit of condemnation and negation, which had a frigid and even offensive tone to many of the fathers. And this despite the fact that the content of the text was new to no one. It was as exactly like dozens of textbooks familiar to the bishops from their seminary days, and in some cases, their former professors were actually responsible for the text presented to them. Now, the theologian is appalled at the prospect that the council would actually reiterate the consistent teaching of the church of all time, and appalled that it would have an anti-modernist tone in the spirit of Pope St. Pius X. Now, who is the theologian deprecating this? Of course, I think you've guessed it's a young Father Joseph Ratzinger writing in his book, Theological Highlights of Vatican II. And he continues in the same vein. He says, the real question behind the discussion can be put this way. Was the intellectual position of anti-modernism, the policy of exclusiveness and condemnation and defense, leading to an almost neurotic denial of all that was new to be continued? Or would the church, after it had taken all the necessary precautions to defend the faith, turn over a new leaf and move on into a new and positive encounter with its own origins and with its brothers and with the world today? So after this rather superficial caricaturization of the anti-modernist position, he goes on to say that the majority opted for the second alternative, a kind of anti-anti-modernist approach, Ratzinger rejoiced that this is a new beginning, it's his words, and he says that the two main arguments used to defend this new position, quoting now, rested on the intention of Pope John that the text should be pastoral and their theology ecumenical, close quote. Now, I cannot overstate the importance of this admission. It gives us a key by which to consider all the documents of Vatican II, they are written in a manner that is both pastoral, so-called, and ecumenical, and this approach permeates the entire operation. So then we have to ask the question, how does one write texts that are pastoral? How does one write ecumenically? Before we answer that, I want to take a very fast look at the ecumenical movement. It started as a movement among Protestant missionaries in 1910, 
the Protestants organized into the Faith and Order Conference. Uh, later on, decades later, this is what will become the World Council of Churches. But in 1919, these, this Protestant Faith and Order Conference invited Pope Benedict XV to send delegates to this, and um, the Pope politely declined. He said that although it was his earnest desire for one fold and one shepherd, it would be impossible for the Catholic Church to adjoin with others in a search for unity. As for the Church of Christ, he said, it is already one and could not give the appearance of searching for itself or for its own unity. His immediate successor, Pope Pius XI, same vein, talking about the genuine Catholic approach and, 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 and uh, an outlook regarding ecumenism. His 1928 encyclical, Mortalium Animus, in the face of various Protestant and modernist notions of church unity, the Holy Father gives the correct teaching. Quote, unity could only arise from one teaching authority, one law of belief, one faith of Christians. There is but one way in which the unity of Christians may be fostered, and that is by fostering the return to the one true Catholic Church of Christ of those who are separated from it. Okay, his immediate successor, Pius XII, same doctrine, 1949 instruction on ecumenism. True union, he says, can only come about by the return of dissidents to the one true Church of Christ. But as we're moving into the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s, modernist churchmen and theologians began to effectively play down the true doctrine regarding unity and to adopt a Protestant brand of unity more along the lines of the World Council of Churches in which convergence replaces conversion. A ecumenism should not have its goal a member of one denomination converting to another or going to the Catholic Church, but we've walked forward together in brotherhood and in our commitment to Christ and this, of course, effectively divorces Christ from his church, which is both his mystical body and his bride. And of course, we read in scripture what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. You can't have Christ without the church. So anyway, I could give demonstration after demonstration after demonstration of how Catholics got hooked into this new way of ecumenical thinking. Uh, many Catholics were straining at the leash to take part, but I don't need to give demonstration. We've had it in our face for more than 50 years. We know what this is. So to make a long story short, the non-Catholic understanding of Christian unity increasingly gained ascendancy in Catholic circles, mainly promoted, and this is important, by the agents of the modernist new theology. And we know all their names. Henri de Lubac, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Yves Congar, Karl Rahner, Hans Kung, Edward Schielebeck, Gregory Bonn, Dominic Chenu, Joseph Ratzinger, Karl Wojtyla, the list goes on. And all of these proponents of the new theology, to a man, were ecumenical. And it's the proponents of the new theology who became the primary drafters of Vatican II. Within days of the council's opening, the progressivists gained the ascendancy. You know the story. I don't have to belabor it. But again, but this brings us back to Father Joseph Ratzinger, his elation that the traditional preparatory documents were jettisoned and that a kind of anti-anti-modernist approach would be taken he rejoices that this is a new beginning, and the arguments used to defend this new position, again, rested on the intention of the Pope, John uh, XXIII, that the text should be pastoral and the theology ecumenical. So I ask the question again, how do you draft a text that is pastoral and ecumenical? 
First, we'll talk about pastoral language, so-called. This flowed from the advocates of the new theology, that on the one hand, it is necessary, they claim, to speak in the common language supposedly accessible to modern man, but the real operation at work is the rejection of scholastic language, the rejection of scholastic philosophy and theology, and the incorporation of modern philosophies, philosophies that are based on agnosticism, skepticism, existentialism, subjectivism. Disdain for St. Thomas, disdain for scholasticism, disdain for scholastic philosophy and theology of the received Aristotelian Thomistic tradition is a central characteristic of the new theology. Father David Greenstock, warning against the new theology in the October 1950 issue of the Thomist, he documents what he called, I'm, I'm quoting him, the revolt against traditional Thomism from the proponents of the new theology. Likewise, another Dominican theologian, Father Anthony Lee, he's warning against the new theology in 1963, and he says, quote, at the time of Pope Leo XIII's restoration of Catholic philosophy, Thomism was merely being neglected. Now, however, there is a definite and vocal anti-Thomism stirring among Catholic intellectuals. He notes that I'm using his words there, a violent anti-Thomism is on the rise and points to the proponents of the new theology and that they have been on the attack against Thomism for decades. He says, quote, by 1946, the destruction of scholastic philosophy and theology had taken on the, prop the, the, the proportions of a victorious crusade, close quote. And this is true, we're gonna see. When Father Ratzinger mentions scholasticism in his 66 book, he always mentions scholasticism with disdain. But now, of course, we have a better understanding why Archbishop Lefebvre, prior to Vatican II, his proposal was shot down. Archbishop Lefebvre foresaw that the imprecise pastoral language of the council documents would cause difficulty in the future. So he proposed that each permission, uh, commission put forth two documents, one more dogmatic, that is in scholastic language, for the use of theologians, the other more pastoral in tone for the use of the average man. And the theological documents drawn up in the traditional scholastic language, he says, to eliminate all ambiguity and error, would serve as the official interpreter, as it were, to the points in the pastoral documents. Archbishop Lefebvre's proposal, I think most of you know this, was immediately rejected it, get, it did get the support of various conservative fathers, but overall, the archbishop said the proposal was met with violent opposition, and he knows why. He says, liberals and progressives like to live in a climate of ambiguity. The idea of clarifying the purpose of the council annoyed them exceedingly. My proposal was thus rejected. So, to answer the question, how does one produce documents that are pastoral in the present context? One produces them by refusing to use the precision of scholastic philosophy and theology. And I would argue that this refusal to employ the scholastic language in favor of the no, new so-called pastoral language is a manifestation of the new theology's disdain for scholasticism. It gives them, the pastoral language gives them the wiggle room they need to advance their agenda. So then, the next question, how does one write ecumenically? Uh, before I do this, I want to tell you about my friend Flanagan. 
who lives in Dublin, don't you know? Uh, Flanagan walked into a bar one day and he said to the bartender, I want three whiskeys, I want three gin and tonic, I want three Guinness, I want three lagers, and I want them all lined up right now. So the bartender lined them all up and Flanagan, pop, 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 pop. He knocks back all 12 drinks in 45 seconds. And the bartender says, good heavens, I have never seen anyone drink like that. Flanagan said, well, you drink like that too, if you had what I've got. The bartender said, what have you got? Flanagan said, a dollar. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, did Flanagan lie? Was there any heresy in Flanagan's approach? No. Flanagan's whole method was an operation of imprecision, deception, and manipulation. I've just given you the key to how to write ecumenically. I've just given you the key to how to understand the documents of Vatican II. Ecumenical theology is basically an operation of imprecision and deception and manipulation. When Father David Greenstock, this time in a 1963 article, warned against the new ecumenical approach and the new ecumenical language, he quoted the Protestant Wizard Hooft. He, this man would came, come to be a president of the World Council of Churches, but as early as 1956, Wizard Hooft said, quote, the simple ABCs of ecumenism is that there is no ecumenical language which is completely unambiguous. Close quote. But as we're going to see, ambiguity is only one of the tools of deception that make up ecumenical language and ecumenical theology. And you don't have to take my word for it. I'm going to quote another magnificent, little-known, pre-Vatican II theologian from the United States named Father Edward Hanahoe. Now, these men whom I'm quoting were opposing the new theology. They were defending scholasticism right up to the eve of the council. Father David Greenstock, Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton, Father Anthony Lee, Father Edward Hanahoe. These terrific Thomas at this point are pretty much all alone. They are fighting in the last ditch, just before the Pearl Harbor of Vatican II strikes. Now, Father Hanahoe was a Graymore friar, <clears throat> Thomistic to the core, and was an expert on ecumenism even prior to Vatican II. He was also a close friend of Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton, and he wrote a little-known but landmark article in the 1962 American Ecclesiastical Review called Ecclesiology and Ecumenism. And as I already noted, from the 1920s into the 50s, early 60s, the new ecumenical movement was on the rise. There were a number of Catholics who were bewitched by it. A body of Catholic literature starts to develop on the subject, some good, most not so good. And Hen Father Edward Hanahoe was a genuine Catholic expert on the topic. Father Hanahoe saw the dangers of this new movement among contemporary Catholics. He spoke of the increasing number of books and articles on the subject of, of ecumenism. And he says, I'm quoting him now, it gives one the impression of great energy sparked by much, enthu much enthusiasm and sympathy, close quote. Now you notice, he doesn't say it's an intellectual movement. Great energy sparked by much enthusiasm and sympathy. It is a movement sparked primarily by emotion 
and sentiment. And we all know when emotions and sentiment are in the front seat, intellect, reason, and the primacy of doctrine take a back seat, as we're going to see. Hannah Ho notes that the doctrine and practice of ecumenism has not yet crystallized and that it does not live up to the criterion of a legitimate scientific discipline. Here's what he said in 62. At the present time, it presents a confusing picture of personal essays, conjecture, information, and ideas of procedure with its own language of special words and phrases. I'm here to dialogue, right? This type of thing. He also points out that the entire movement does not rest on correct principles. He repeats, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the one and only definition that ecumenism can have for Catholics, ecumenism must be, I'm quoting him, must be an enterprise that seeks reconciliation with dis dissidents with the church. He warned of the anti-Catholic spirit growing in the field of ecumenism amongst Catholics, and he said, this is an important quote, he said this, in fact, in 1959. He said that the new ecumenism, quote, has the effect of perpetuating the state of separation, serving rather to keep people out of the church rather than bring them into it. Now remember, we're answering the question, how does one write ecumenically? John XXIII wanted the Vatican II documents to be pastoral in tone and ecumenical in theology. How do we do this? In order to answer, I'm going to extract four points from Father Hanahoe's writings that tells us how ecumenists operate. Number one, ecumenism governs ecclesiology and not the other way around. I'm going to talk about that, then, then we're going to explain them. Number two, significant silence. Number three, pretend the magisterium has not spoken. And number four, what is confirmed in one place is denied in another. Now, he actually spoke of more, more uh, of these things, but I'm, for this presentation, I'm just spotlighting these four. So, the first one. Father Hanahoe insists that in any discussion or development in this regard, it is Catholic ecclesiology that must govern ecumenism and not the other way around. I think everybody here knows what ecclesiology is. It's, it's what the Catholic Church teaches about the church, okay? It's what, it's the theology of the, it's, a, it's what the church teaches about the church, okay? Ecclesiology. Now, ecumenism, he says, must not be the deciding factor in any theological or pastoral development regarding the church. Rather, it must be the traditional Catholic ecclesiology that must govern ecumenism. And some of the key points in this ecclesiology is, first, that there's only one true church established by our Lord, outside of which there's no salvation. Secondly, that truth and Christian unity exist already in this church and that we should not go outside of it in any way in an alleged search for truth or search for unity. And third, that what the Catholic Church has always taught throughout the centuries must be, and this is his terminology, the proximate and universal criterion of truth in matters of faith and morals. There is no need to create a new ecumenical theology. Interesting, someone else writing about this, Father Great David Greenstock, 1963, making the same warnings. He sounded the alarm against, at the time, the present ecumenical madness now gripping Catholic churchmen, and Father Greenstock stresses, I'm quoting him now, that reunion cannot come about without complete unity in the Catholic faith. <clears throat> he also says 
the Catholics must reject the temptation, this is his words, to use the ecumenical excuse as a weapon for the destruction of scholasticism, we're back to the new theology, and the creation of a new situational ecumenical theology. He goes on, reunion to a Catholic must mean unity of faith and worship. To, to imply the opposite is to destroy the truth and to betray Christ. And he stresses uncompromised fidelities to the decrees of the Council of Trent and Vatican I, and he says again, above all, there must be no attempt to create a new ecumenical theology to fit the ecumenical situation. So Father Greenstock is making the same point as did Father Hanahoe because they both see the imminent danger. Ecclesiology must govern ecumenism. Ecumenism must not govern ecclesiology. Now, I'm going to go straight to Father Hanahoe's second point, because my, the example I'm going to give uh, incorporates both of them. The second point is what I said earlier, significant silence. Now, this tactic does not necessarily deny a truth of the faith, no heresy in it, huh? but it pretends that the given truth does not exist. It passes over in significant silence any truth of the faith that stands in the way of the new ecumenical program. I'm going to give an example of how this tactic operates in Vatican II, one among many. And again, we look to Father Joseph Ratzinger in his 1966 book, Theological Highlights of Vatican II. Here he explains that the council document Lumen Gentium, which is the council's document on the church, and the decree on ecumenism are absolutely linked. That the groundwork for the decree on ecumenism was established within Lumen Gentium. They drafted it that way. Here's what he says. The text on the church was favorably predisposed towards ecumenical thinking in that its basic theological line was ecumenical. So he tells us, as one drafting the documents, the basic text of Lumen Gentium is ecumenical. He goes on on the same page. It attempted to slough off particularisms coming from Latin and scholastic sources and to keep the door open on all legitimate theological questions. So we see already, okay, contempt for scholasticism, for the precision of scholasticism, which is a defining element of the new theology. He goes on on the same page. The title of the text no longer referred in scholastic fashion to the nature of the church, but rather spoke of its mystery, okay? So basing the text on the church's nature would have been the scholastic approach. What is the church, okay? But using this new vague term of the church's mystery, the boundaries established by scholasticism and traditional Catholic theology are knocked down. We have von Balthasar's raising of the bastions, and it opens the way for a conception of church that is, in some mysterious way, bigger than the Catholic Church, so that non-Catholics, in some mysterious way, are part of the Church. We know how they talk. Now, Ratzinger addresses the question, who is really a member of the Church? Ratzinger says, this is amazing, Ratzinger says, the first schema of 1962 still clung to the traditional scholastic formula, which saw membership of the Church as dependent on the joint presence of three prerequisites, baptism, profession of the same faith, and acceptance of the hierarchy headed by the Pope. Only those, I'm still quoting him, only those who met these requirements could be called members of the church. Obviously, this was a very narrow formulation. 
very narrow formulation. Now, I'm sure, especially the priests and the seminarians, they picked up on this right away. What Ratzinger is boasting about is the council's rejection of St. Robert Bellarmine's precise definition of the church. St. Robert Bellarmine, elaborating upon the teaching of Trent, he has given us the finest, most precise definition of the church and what constitutes membership and unity. It is recognized as the most precise definition. Monsignor Fenton in 1944 has a three-part article, it's fascinating, on the, on the development that culminated in, in Bellarmine's definition as the church is the perfect society. I'm going to read Bellarmine here. Bellarmine says, the church is one, not twofold, and this one true Catholic church is the assembly of men, united in the profession of the same true Christian faith, and in the communion of the same sacraments, under the rule of the legitimate pastors, and in particular, the one vicar of Christ on earth, the Roman pontiff. Close quote. Now, Ratzinger is telling us that Vatican II effectively rejected this true definition because it did not square with the ecumenical program. I'm going to read what he said again. The first schema of 1962 still clung to the traditional scholastic formula which saw membership in the church as dependent on the joint presence of three prerequisites, baptism, profession of the faith, and acceptance of the hierarchy headed by the Pope. That's the Bellarmine definition, basically. Only those who met these criteria could be called members of the church, obviously, says this was a very narrow formulation. The result, he says, was the notion of member of the church could only be applied to Catholics. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> With such answer to the question of church membership, it became very difficult to describe the Christian dignity of the non-Catholic Christian. Accordingly, Ratzinger says, modifications were made in the text submitted in the 63, 1962 to the Council Fathers. What were these modifications? The text avoided the expression member of the church hallowed by long usage in Catholic theology. Use of this expression would have immediately aroused the scholastic theologians who saw this notion as necessarily including the three above-mentioned prerequisites, the Bellarmine definition. In view of this difficulty, the decision was made to avoid this controversial term. Okay, so something that's hallowed by long usage is suddenly a controversial term. He goes on. The new text described the relationship between the church and the non-Catholic Christian without speaking of membership. Direct quote here, by shedding this terminological armor, the text acquired a much wider scope. So, close quote. So we see what's happening here. It's precisely what Father Hanahoe and Father Greenstock were warning against. They've abandoned scholasticism. Ecumenism is now governing ecclesiology rather than the other way around and they pass over in significant silence the revered definition of the Church of St. Robert Bellarmine because it interferes with this radiant city of ecumenism that they're trying to build. Okay, No explicit heresy, maybe not, but what's key to understanding in the documents of Vatican II is to pay attention to what's not said, to pay attention to the incorporation of these tactics. Okay, So, you've seen the first two. Ecumenism governs ecclesiology, and significant silence. I want to move on to the third point, which is noted by Father Hanahoe, pretend the magisterium has not spoken. Now, this is another aspect, really, of significant silence, but it's a bit more serious because it concerns the magisterium of the church. With this tactic, there are certain magisterial teachings that we're going to lock in the basement. We're going to pretend they don't exist. I'll just give you a couple examples from the council. 
Now, I had mentioned earlier, okay, the two major documents of the first half of the 20th century on ecumenism. 1928, Pius XI, Mortalium Animus. 1949, Pius XII, Instruction on Ecumenism. And they both reiterate the same theme. True union can only come about by the return of dissidents to the one true Church of Christ. But Vatican II's decree on ecumenism neither mentions nor even footnotes. 1928, Pius XI, Mortalium Animus. 1949, Instruction on Ecumenism. The two major documents of the 20th century, no mention, as if they don't exist. Crucial omission. Again, we see the ecumenical tactic. Significant silence, pretend the magisterium is not spoken. And this crucial omission, and this is what's really important, the enemies of the church spot this right away. Because the crucial omission is spotlighted and celebrated by Protestants and others as a major ecumenical step forward. Robert McAfee Brown, Protestant observer at Vatican II, he celebrates the decree on ecumenism because of what it does not say. In his 1968 book, The Ecumenical Revolution, McGrathic Brown cheers. He says, the document makes clear how new is the attitude that has emerged. No more is there talk of schismatic and heretics, but rather of separated brethren. No more is there an imperial demand that the dissidents return in penance, penitence to the church who has no need of penitence. Instead, there is a recognition that both sides are guilty of the sin of division and must reach out penitentially to one another. Now you know what the apology program was all about. No more are Protestants dismissed merely as sects, S-E-C-T-S, or psychological entities alone. Instead, it is, it, it is acknowledged that there is a measure of ecclesial reality to be found within their corporate life. Now elsewhere in the same book, Ecumenical Revolution, McGaffey Brown mentions Mortalium Animus and the 1949 Instruction on Ecumenism. He has nothing but contempt for these documents, but he loves Vatican II's decree on ecumenism. Another example, Protestant Samuel McRae Cavert, bursting with admiration over Vatican II's decree on ecumenism because of what it does not say, because of what it, it, it refuses to affirm. Cavert writes, Instead of dogmatically insisting on their return to Rome as the only possible movement toward unity, the decree is concerned with the movement towards Christ. Again, we have this, this error of separating Christ from his church, as if you can have one without the other. He goes on, from a Protestant angle, this fresh orientation is of the highest consequence and is pregnant with creative possibilities. The significance of the decree on ecumenism stands out vividly when it's read side by side with the encyclical Mortalium Animus and the instruction of the Holy Office. He sees the contrast. These represented, these earlier documents represented such an isolated aloofness that the door appears to be closed against any effective dialogue between Roman Catholics and non-Roman Christians. Today, the door is wide open, okay? Tactic of ecumenists. Pretend the magisterium is not spoken, significant silence, crucial omissions. And we know how important a crucial omission can be. Just suppose a husband and a wife, and the husband, the wife gets the sense that maybe something's a little wrong. And at one point she says to her husband, honey, do you love me? Well, we've been married for 25 years. Yes, but honey, do you love me? 
Well, we have four strapping children, and they're a great joy to our lives, aren't they? Yes, but honey, do you love me? Well, we got this nice house, and we got this built-in pool, and we go to... Yes, but honey, do you love me? See, the failure to affirm means everything. It is crucial. Now, a third crucial omission, significant silence, pretend the magisterium has not spoken. We see in the council document Nostra Etate regarding Judaism. I don't know if you know this or not, but in the original schema, there was a section that called for the conversion of the Jews, and it was drafted in the most gentle language. I'll, I'll read what it was. It said, quote, it is, the, it is worth remembering that the union of the Jewish people with the church is part of the Christian hope. Therefore, following the teaching of the apostles, the church waits with unshaking faith and deep longing for the entry of that people into the fullness of the people of God established by Christ, close quote. And even this gentle language was considered too offensive. The rabbis, Jewish groups, complained to Paul VI about it, so it was dropped. And just as Robert McAfee Brown praised the omissions in the decree of ecumenism, we have a rabbi praising the omission in Nostra Etaste. Rabbi Abraham Herschel, at the time, would congratulate the document saying, quote, the schema on the Jews is the first statement in church history devoid of any expression of hope for conversion. See, crucial omission, significant silence, pretend the magisterium of the church has not spoken, and then set the new policies accordingly. This is key in reading and understanding the true nature of Vatican II. And finally, the fourth point, what is affirmed in one place is denied in another. This, of course, is an old modernist tactic. And we could give a lot of examples here, and I'm not going to give this one within the context of ecumenism, but within the a very obvious one that's within Gaudium et Spes on the primary purpose of marriage. Now, traditional doctrine says the primary end of marriage is the begetting and the education of children as members of Christ, and the secondary end is mutual love and assistance between the spouses. And this flows from natural law, okay? But here's what we read in Gaudium et Spes. Marriage and conjugal love are by their nature ordained toward the begetting and education of children. Children are really the supreme gift of marriage and contribute very substantially to the welfare of their parents. Hence, while not, while not making the other purpose of matrimony of less account, bing, the true practice of conjugal love and the whole meaning of the family which results from it have the same that the couple be ready with stout hearts to cooperate in the love of their creator. It goes on and on, as the document does. Now, what do we see? First, children are a supreme gift. So this gives the impression of children as the primary end of marriage, yet there is significant silence because, they, first of all, they don't use the term primary end, and in a way they pretend that magisterium is not spoken because they don't reiterate Costi Canubi, that is very clear, Pius XI's encyclical on marriage, that's very clear in this regard, and then we read, as I said, while not making the other purpose of matrimony of less account. So in practice and in emphasis, what happens is the secondary end becomes the primary end, it's raised to the primary end, and this opens the door then for acceptance of contraception and other aberrations that I won't mention. Now, Father Dominic Chenu, a leading light of the new theology, he admits that this was purposely done and that he was involved in the process. See, they've won, so they're boasting. Here's what Chenu says. He said this in 1975. 
He said that in Gaudium et Spes, the theologians drafted the documents in such a way as to reformulate the traditional thesis on the two ends of matrimony so as to give priority to love among spouses, though not to exclude procreation, which was nice of them. Okay. So, we see that this is the way they manipulated the text. Significant silence, pretend the magisterium is not spoken, what is affirmed in one place is denied in another. And this is how Vatican II operates. This permeates the entire operation of Vatican II. And this is why we can say that the documents of Vatican II are flawed texts. And it's not merely we who say this. I'm going to quote two churchmen who say the same thing, um, kind of in their own way. Bishop Thomas Morrow, a prelate who participated in Vatican II, he's dead now, he said later in life, he said, quote, I was relieved when we were told that this council was not aiming at defining or giving final statements on doctrine because a statement on doctrine has to be very carefully formulated and I would have regarded the council documents as tentative and liable to be reformed. Next, our good friend, Walter Cardinal Casper. Uh, I like Cardinal Casper. I like him because he says openly what the real agenda of Vatican II is. He'll say what others will not say. Here's what he said April 23rd, 2013, in the Observatory Romano, Vatican's newspaper. Quote, in many places, the Council Fathers had to find compromise formulas in which often the positions of the majority are located immediately next to the, those of the minority, designed to delimit them. Thus, the conciliar texts themselves have a huge potential for conflict and open the doors to a selective reception in either direction. Okay, it's quite an admission. So, to repeat, tactics of ecumenism at work throughout the council texts. Ecumenism governs ecclesiology rather than the other way around. Significant silence, pretend the magisterium is not spoken, and what is affirmed in one place is denied in another. And this gives us a key, as I said, to, to the reading of the Vatican II documents, and gives us a key in particular to read the Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. Now, to examine the Constitution in light of all I said would actually require a second talk, and I never intended to give a point-by-point -point examination of the document on the liturgy. But suffice it to say, for example, that when we read the Council's call for increased vernacular, we encounter significant silence. We have the pretending that the magisterium is not spoken there is no mention of the fact that the Council of Trent condemned an all-vernacular liturgy. Canon 9, Session 12 of Trent, quote, there's a couple other things in this canon, but I'm just distilling it here. If anyone says that the Mass ought to be celebrated in the vernacular tongue only, let him be anathema. There was no reminder in this call for the vernacular, not even footnoted, of Pius VI's 1794 letter, Octorum Fide, that denounced the demand of expressing the liturgy in the vernacular language, I'm quoting the Pope now, as rash, offensive to pious ears, insulting to the church, favorable to the charges of heretics against it. Okay? Significant silence. Pretend the magisterium is not spoken. Suffice it to say that in Vatican II's document on the liturgy, we read in the first article, quote, the sacred council has set out to adapt more closely to the needs of those institutions which are subject to change, to foster whatever can promote union 
among all those who believe in Christ. Accordingly, it sees reasons for under, undertaking a reform of the liturgy." Close quote. We see, foster whatever promotes union among the all believe in Christ. The ecumenical intention is stated in the first article, the very first article on the constitution of the liturgy. And this Protestant flavor was obvious as the, to the man I quoted earlier, our dear Anglican friend, John Mormon, who said in praise of the Council's liturgy, I'm going to give you a little more of the quote, the schema on the liturgy is a remarkable document. When I read the schema on the liturgy, I realized that many of the proposals which were put before the Council were in fact points which we Anglicans ourselves adopted 400 years ago. These would include greater simplicity, the use of the vernacular, more reading of scripture, more preaching and catechizing, the part assigned to the faithful in the Mass, and the possibility of administering the sacrament under both kinds. And that's what he talks about. If they keep going, they'll soon find they, they, they invented the Book of Common Prayer. He saw the Protestant orientation of the liturgical revolution in the council schemas from the very beginning. See, the new Mass is not a misinterpretation of the council. From the very beginning, as I quoted, Father Gregory Bourne praises the council document on the liturgy because it will, quote, once and for all, destroy the uniformity of the Roman rite. And of course, we have the Protestant construction of the new mass being affirmed by Jean Gouton, the French journalist who was a close friend and confidant of Paul VI. And he confirmed in a radio interview in the 1990s that it was the intention of Paul VI to do this. Here's what he says. The intention of Paul VI with regard to what is commonly called the mass was to reform the Catholic liturgy in such a way that it should almost coincide with the Protestant liturgy. But what is curious is that Paul VI did this to get as close as possible to the Protestant Lord's Supper. There was with Paul VI an ecumenical intention to remove, or at least to correct, or at least to relax what was too Catholic in the traditional sense in the Mass and repeat to get the Catholic Mass closer to the Calvinist Mass. Close liturgy, close quote. So we see that not only was ecclesio uh, ecumenism governing ecclesiology, it was also governing the liturgical reform itself. Now all these tricks, deceptions, omissions are going on in the Vatican II document, even if we see in you know throughout it doesn't contain outright heresy. Remember, Flanagan did not lie to the bartender. There was no heresy in anything Flanagan said. No, Flanagan's little stunt was an operation of imprecision, deception, and manipulation. So I'm about to close, but taking all of this into consideration, we now better, better understand what we read in the Ottaviani intervention, which was the critical study of the new mass by Cardo Ottaviani and the Roman theologians, which I understand a new edition is about to be published, released by the Angelus Press. Uh, these prelates and theologians, though, they knew what they were looking at, and they sounded the alarm against the Protestant nature of this new liturgy. Cardo Ottaviani, in their famous letter to Pope Paul VI, June 5, 1969, that accompanied the critical study, he said that the new Mass represents, both in whole and in its details, I think you all know this quote, a striking departure from the theology of the Mass as it was formulated by Session 22 of the Council of Trent. The critical study of the Roman theologians on the New Mass, otherwise known as the Ottaviani Intervention, spotlighted the many deficiencies inherent in the New Mass, especially the Protestant orientation.
Some of the defects they noted, omission of elements emphasizing the Catholic teaching that the Mass makes satisfaction for sin, which is a teaching utterly rejected by Protestants, the reduction of the priest's role to a position approximating that of a Protestant minister. Father Thiemann uh, covered some of this yesterday. Implicit denials of Christ's real presence and the doctrine of transubstantiation. That's a Protestant orientation. The change of the consecration from a sacramental action into a mere narrative retelling of the story of the Last Supper, Protestant orientation. The fragmentation of the church's unity of belief through the introduction of countless options, ambiguous language and equivocation through the right which compromise the church doctrine. That's not all. The study also said, quote, it is obvious that the Novus Ordo obsess obsessively emphasizes supper and memorial instead of the unbloody re renewal of the sacrifice of the cross. The study points out in the new mass, quote, the central role of the real presence is suppressed. And the study also points out one, probably my favorite line in the whole Ottaviani intervention, that the new mass quote has the new mass quote has much to gladden the heart of the most modernist Protestant. Now, mind you, and I've stressed this throughout the years, this is a critique of the new mass in the original Latin, in its, if we could use this term, in its purest form, as it was originally released by Paul VI. The other abuses, the bad translations, they all came later. The critical study didn't talk about these, though it could foresee them. So the new mass at its best is really not a Catholic liturgy. It was not constructed, it was not made for the worship of God that is his due, but was constructed for the sake of a modernist ecumenism that is contrary to reason and has always been condemned by the Catholic Church. The reason I never attend the new mass, speaking personally, has nothing to do with the validity. Is it valid? Is it not valid? No, to me that's not the real issue. The reason I only attend the Tridentine Mass and never did new is because the new Mass is not really a Catholic form of worship. It is essentially, at its best, in its purest form, a modernist and Protestantized liturgy constructed to serve the false gods of liberalism and ecumenism. And should we be surprised, with ecumenism and an anti-scholastic pastoral language as the guiding principle of the text of Vatican II, the Protestant outcome of the Council's liturgical revolution would seem to be inevitable. Aquinas said, a small error in the beginning is a big error at the end. Well, ecumenism and the new theology are big errors in the beginning, and we end up with colossal catastrophe at the end. So we better understand why Cardinal Ottaviani and the Roman theologians say in the critical study, and quote, it is obvious that the new order of mass has no intention of presenting the faith taught by the Council of Trent, but it is to this faith that the Catholic conscience is bound forever. Thus, with the promulgation of the new order of mass, the true Catholic is faced with a tragic need to choose. Close quote. And we choose to have nothing to do with the new mass because it is not truly a Catholic form of worship. Thank you for your attention.